the gospel according to Mark, uh, different than what's listed in your bulletin. Mark chapter 14, read verses um, 12 through 25 on page 1011 in your pew Bibles, the account of the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, beginning at verse 12 through verse 25, Mark chapter 14. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then we'll read that in connection with Lord's Day uh, 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 885 and 886 in the back of your hymnals. Questions 78 and 79, which we'll read responsively. It asks first, do the bread and wine become the real body and the blood of Christ. No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us 
that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Congregation, last week as we began our study of the Lord's Supper, referred to John Owen, who uh, said one reason why we so little value the sacrament may be because we understand so little of its nature and of the special communion with Christ that we enjoy in it. Um, he was persuaded that one of, of the reasons for such a low view of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, because people didn't really understand it. And if that was the case over 300 years ago when Owen said that, then um, surely it's the case today that one of the reasons why the church of the 21st century so little values the sacrament is because we don't really understand it. We don't really understand. Why would, would someone title a sermon on the Lord's Supper the greatest meal on earth? Or why would 6% of our catechism be devoted to this meal? And so this afternoon, as we continue thinking about the Lord's Supper, and as we look forward even next week to coming to Christ's table, we want to think about what is it that makes this meal so great? What are the benefits of the Lord's Supper? I want to think about three of those benefits this afternoon. These are not exhaustive. The Lord's Supper is like a a multifaceted diamond. Its, it's uh, blessings are, are more than just one or two. We'll look at, at three of those this afternoon um, that it, first of all, assures us of the forgiveness of sins. Um, second, it is a means by which we feast with God. And third, it is a foretaste of future glory. The forgiveness of sins in this meal is signified Feasting with God is enjoyed and future glory is tasted at the table of our Lord, this greatest meal on earth. So as we look forward next week to partaking of it, I want to whet your appetite for it by reminding you just what is taking place in this meal. First, the forgiveness of sins is signified. Um, Question 79 we just read, it says, Christ, by this meal, wants to assure us, by this visible sign and pledge, that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. In other words, to just um, simplify that statement, Jesus wants to assure us that our sins are forgiven, that he is our substitute who paid the penalty for them. We see this in in the broader context of the passage that we just read where Mark makes the point that Jesus' institution of this meal 
was on the night of the Passover. He points that out in uh, verse 12. Again, in verse 14 and verse 16, in fact, if, if you were to look at the section before this, he, he's already hinting at it in uh, 14 verse 1. It's as if he, he just can't wait to, to make this connection that the, the meal Jesus is about to institute is on the night of the Passover. Boys and girls, you remember uh, what happened at that first Passover in Exodus chapter 12? Remember how um, God was, was about to save his people from bondage to um, Egypt, bondage to Pharaoh, who is a, a type of, of Satan. Now he was going to free them from that bondage um, unto communion with himself. That's, that's why the last half of the book of Exodus is all about the construction of a tabernacle, the place where they meet with God and, and commune with him. God is about to save them that night from bondage to Egypt unto communion with himself. You remember in Exodus 12, on that night before he freed them, what did God uh, tell the Israelite fathers to do? Remember he said, I want you to take a one-year-old lamb that is without blemish, a perfect, spotless male lamb, and slaughter it. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost of your house so that when I pass through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborn, I will pass over your house and no plague will befall you. I won't strike you down in my wrath, but the lamb will die in your place. This is a sacrificial lamb offered in faith so that God's judgment will not be poured out on them, but will be absorbed by the one who dies for them. And every year, the Israelites were to reenact this with a Passover meal that both looked back on what God had done that first uh, Passover night, but at the same time looked forward to what God would do in the future in providing the true lamb of God who would take away the sins of of the world, the one to whom that Passover lamb ultimately pointed. So now in Mark 14, God chooses this occasion for not only the death of his son, but for the meal by which his people would remember that death. You see, I trust the the, the symbolism. It's, It's unmistakable. Jesus is taking the place of the Passover lamb. Which is why, as we read in Mark 14, there is no mention of a lamb being eaten at this meal, which normally was the case, but in this case, Jesus was the lamb. So he takes the bread and he he breaks it. He says, this represents my body. As Keller said, there is no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table presiding over this meal. As John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is here identifying himself as that Lamb. That's why Paul will will call him in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Passover Lamb. He is the one in whom this meal is fulfilled. Just as that Passover lamb was to have none of its bones broken, so John will go out of his way to say that none of Jesus' bones were broken as he died on the cross. Just as that lamb was to be a perfect male without blemish, so Jesus is the sinless, spotless Son of God. 
Just as the blood of that lamb was to be sprinkled in faith to turn away God's wrath, so the blood of this Passover lamb turns away the wrath of God as it is fully satisfied in his death. Jesus is the Passover lamb who chooses this occasion to now institute a new meal in place of the old to to supersede that one because the very thing to which it pointed has now come. So there is now uh, no more need for a Passover meal because that to which it pointed has come. It's been fulfilled in Christ, the Passover lamb. Just as that meal um, symbolized or, or uh, signified the, the sacrificial offering of a perfect spotless lamb to cleanse the people and to prepare them for communion with God, to turn away his wrath and, and bring about the forgiveness of sins, to free them from bondage, not just to Pharaoh, but to Satan. So Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes everything that pointed to. And so now he institutes a new meal to signify all of those same realities of the propitiatory uh, or atoning blood of the lamb who takes away God's wrath. His body sacrificed for us that our sins could be forgiven. And instituting this meal symbolizing his, his broken body and poured out blood, Jesus wishes to assure us that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Just as that Passover lamb took the place of, of those individual Israelites and bore God's wrath for them, so Jesus does the same. And so the very very context, the very um, origin of this meal on the night of the Passover points to the fact that Jesus took our place and atoned for our sins. Every time we come to the table, God wants us to be reminded of that. That all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely yours as if you personally had suffered and made satisfaction for your sins. It's the first benefit of of the Lord's Supper. It signifies the forgiveness of sins. It signifies your sins being placed on that lamb. It's perfect, unblemished sinlessness being credited to you. It it signifies the forgiveness of sins and and, and, and gifting of righteousness in fulfilling that that Passover sacrifice that pointed to him. And so it reminds us, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us, of guilt within, that Christ has paid for it. That his blood was poured out and his body was broken and God was satisfied with that sacrifice. Just as he was with that lamb, so with Christ. In fact, much more so, for it was Christ himself that that lamb first pointed to. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of his sons, as we, of his son, as we uh, sing often, In uh, number 265, in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. It's the first benefit. It it reminds us of the very heart of the gospel. Of course, um, the, the Lord's Supper does more than that. It not only signifies the forgiveness of sins, but it is an actual enjoyment of that which forgiveness of sins makes possible. Communion with God feasting with God. Remember, I made the point that in in the uh, 
the general outline of the book of Exodus, those first several chapters are devoted to Israel being saved from bondage to Pharaoh. Then the vast majority of the book, starting around chapters 24 and 25, is all about communion with God. It's about the construction of a holy meeting place. And it's to that same section of Scripture that uh, Jesus actually points us back in verse 24 of Mark 14, where uh, Jesus says there, this is the blood of the covenant. Even as that great feast in Exodus chapter 12 is already in the background of, of everything that Jesus is saying and doing in the institution of this meal. So this line in verse 24 where he says, this is my blood of the covenant is hearkening back to another meal in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses and Aaron, the high priest, and his two sons and the 70 elders uh, go up on the mountain to feast with God. But before they do, it says that Moses, I think it's around verse 8 or so, he offers a peace offering. And it says he sprinkles the blood on the people, and he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. And then they go up, and it says in Exodus 24, verses 10 and 11, they saw the God of Israel. They beheld him, and they ate and drank. And Jesus, in alluding back to this account by quoting from it, is signaling that not only is the Lord's Supper the fulfillment of the Passover meal, but there is a sense in in which all of the sacrificial meals of the Old Testament are, are taken up in this one including that meal in Exodus 24, this fellowship meal on the mountain with God. Professor um, Dr. Venema puts it this way. He says, when, when Christ uses the words of Exodus 24 in instituting the supper, he is appealing to this Old Testament fellowship meal that Moses and the leaders of Israel had on the mount, where the blood atonement which preceded that meal was a type, a shadow of the blood atonement provided by Christ. And the one-time celebration of that ceremony was a type of the frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper by New Covenant believers who enjoy a fuller communion with God on the basis of Christ's shed blood. Even as that meal was a feasting with God on the basis of shed blood, Christ is signaling every time we partake of the supper, it is a feasting with God where he is spiritually present with us and we eat and drink with him. Isn't that we heard last week from 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says that this meal is a, a fellowship, a communion, a participation in him, which question 79 again alludes to by reminding us that we are actually nourished with the very person of Christ who is the true food and drink of our souls with whom we commune as we come to his table. It is not just a, a mere memorial Yes, it signifies the forgiveness of sins. Yes, it is a remembrance, but it's more. There is a a past aspect of the meal pointing us back to the Passover and back to the the true Passover and its fulfillment of the cross. There's also a present aspect where just as the people ate and drank in fellowship with God on the basis of, of the peace offering that had been made, so as we come to this table at which Christ, um, the very institution of, makes reference to that meal, 
We enjoy the very same thing that they did. Fellowship with God as we feast with him and he is spiritually present with us. They beheld God and they ate and drank. And so do we by faith. The Lord's Supper is nothing less than feasting with God. Where with the, the blood of Christ sprinkled over us, we ascend the mountaintop as it were, Mount, Mount Zion, this place where Hebrews 12 says we come to meet with God each Lord's Day and we feast with him. This is what we do as our hearts are lifted up to the ascended Christ to behold him by faith and to be nourished with his life-giving power. We feast with God. And yet not only do we feast with him now in the supper, but Christ also makes the point that this present feasting is a foretaste of future feasting. As he says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. If you read Luke's version in Luke 22, there's even even more of an emphasis on this as Jesus says twice, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And again, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Matthew likewise mentions it. All three of the synoptic gospel writers mention that Jesus links this meal with that meal. That Jesus links this meal which we enjoy in the present with a future meal in the age to come. All three of the gospel writers go out of their way to mention that the benefits of the Lord's Supper include not only the forgiveness of sin signified, not only feasting with God enjoyed, but future glory tasted. There is a past element where it points us to what Christ has accomplished in history. There is a present element where we're feasting with God in the heavenlies, but there is also a future aspect where this meal is a foretaste of that meal. The wedding supper of the Lamb, on the basis of his shed blood, will behold his face and we will eat and drink with him. The meal spoken of in Revelation 19 between the bride and the king. The meal prophesied in Isaiah 25, where it says that on this mountain where the Lord will swallow up death forever, he will make a feast for all peoples of rich food and well-aged wine. This meal points to that meal. One theologian says the Lord's Supper is the now of the feast of the end of the age, a foretaste of that future celebration. Because the bridegroom has come, he offers the wedding feast now. And though this feast the church celebrates is perhaps only a crumb or two from that table, it is a real anticipation of that future feast. A proleptic celebration of the feast of the kingdom, a sign of the new creation, a model of the the eschatological order and microcosm of the way things really ought to be. This is the same point we made when we looked at Lord's Day 25 a month ago, that this is the meal of the new creation. The crumbs from from the table of the messianic banquet falling down into the presence we might taste of the age to come already now. That the Lord's Supper and the Lamb's Supper are two sides of the same reality. And Christ is making that point in Mark 14 by instituting this meal with reference to that meal not just here, but in Luke and Matthew as well, implying that this one is a foretaste of that one. 
Herman Ritterboss um, says the Lord's Supper has a prefigurative character. That is to say, it, it prefigures something. That which happens at this meal, he says, will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But also, that which will be the fullness of joy in God's kingdom has its commencement and foretaste in this meal. He says the relation between the Lord's Supper and eating and drinking in the coming kingdom is not merely that between symbol and reality, but that between commencement and fulfillment. He's saying this meal is not just a symbol of that meal, but it is the hors d'oeuvres, is the first course. And Christ invites us to dine with him. It is a, a foretaste, better, a taste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's why it's the greatest meal on earth, because it is a meal of the new earth, invading this present age. Which, by the way, is, is why the, the elements that are used are not insignificant. But when Jesus speaks in verse 25 of, of drinking the fruit of the vine in the coming kingdom, he's referring to those vats that will be overflowing with well-aged wine from the prophets. It's also why his very first miracle in John chapter 2 is turning water into wine. The elements are not incidental, but wine in the prophet symbolizes that fullness of joy that characterizes the kingdom, that covenant blessing from God who gives wine, Psalm 104, to make the heart glad, who, who in the Song of Songs and in Proverbs symbolizes the intoxicating joy of marital love with the symbol of wine. Go back and read Song of Songs and see how often wine is mentioned. And all of this is pointing ahead to that day when the vats will overflow with it at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so it is not our prerogative to just switch out the wine with something else, but there is a biblical theological significance. The very element Jesus uses points us to glory. It is an inbreaking of the age to come where the overflowing vats symbolize the fullness of joy. And so Christ gives us wine. He gives us bread and wine to point us back to his broken body and poured out blood to assure us that all of our sins are completely forgiven on the basis of his one sacrifice. He gives us himself communicated by his spirit as the true food and drink of our souls where we, we feast with him even as Israel beheld God and they ate and drank with him. And he gives us these elements as something of a signpost, something of a, of a symbol, something of a foretaste of the messianic banquet when we'll eat and drink anew with him in the coming kingdom of God. And these, beloved, are just a few of the benefits of this greatest meal on earth. As Owen said, the more and more we understand this, the more and more we will value this meal. The more and more you understand that in this meal you are tasting of the wedding banquet to come, the more and more you understand that, that this wine comes from the overflow of that wine which symbolizes the marital union between Christ and his people, the, the covenant blessings of the age to come, the fullness of joy that will characterize that eternal honeymoon, you'll want to partake. You'll cherish it. You'll treasure it, you'll value it, you won't neglect it for trivial reasons, but you'll come as often as you can. 
And the more and more you, you understand that Christ is really present in this meal, that it's not a mere memorial, but as we heard last week, it is Christ reminds us again in alluding to that Exodus 24 meal where they beheld God and they ate and drank with him. The more and more that you comprehend that, you will see that by showing no interest in this meal, or by failing to prepare your heart for this meal, or by staying away from this meal, you're insulting the person of Christ. Watson said, Christ has furnished his table before his guests, and those who willfully turn their backs upon this ordinance slight his love and provoke him. Recognizing that one of the benefits of this meal is the enjoyment of present feasting with God in Christ should lead us to so treasure it, to want more of it. And not only because of the sanctifying union and communion of the Christ that's enjoyed where, where he is present at his table in the same tender compassion he had on earth as the most accessible being in the universe who, who looks into your heart and knows everything about you yet bids you come but also because as he bids you come and feeds you with his very self and nourishes you with the rich food and well-aged wine of the age to come, he also reminds you of the basis on which you enjoy all of these blessings. His sacrificial death is the true Passover lamb given for your sins, slaughtered in your place. Love, every time this meal is administered, the gospel is proclaimed. Which is perhaps yet another reason to have it not infrequently, because even if the preacher fails to proclaim the gospel, it is nearly impossible to fail to proclaim it in the supper. Through this meal, Christ assures us of the forgiveness of sins, communion with him and and of that future intoxicating union and communion with him pictured in the sweetness of wine that is a foretaste of glory. It is the greatest meal on earth and Jesus invites you by faith to come. To confess your need for this Passover lamb to atone for your sins. To paste his blood on the doorpost of your heart and confess that faith publicly in the presence of his people and then come without money to feast. On Christ himself, the food and drink of our souls for eternal life who strengthens our faith in that same gospel that is herein proclaimed. So let us prepare our hearts to come next week and enjoy this feast and be assured of the gospel this sanctifying means of grace. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's Supper and how it preaches to all five of our senses, how by it you assure us of your great love. You remind us of Christ's great sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins and communicate yourself to us so that by your spirit we feast with you. You allow us already now to enjoy a taste of future glory. Lord, make us long to come. Help us to desire to come to your table to truly understand something of what we've just heard so we would indeed believe that this is the greatest meal on earth because it is a token of the new heavens and new earth. Nourish us by this table as we come to it next week. Strengthen our faith in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross 
and nourish our souls and refresh them as we behold you by faith and eat and drink with you in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to God's word now with number 196. At the Lamb's high feast we sing praise to our victorious King. Number 196, we'll stand to sing all three stanzas.